Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Bear. Susan, I'm first of all so happy that you're joining me on Think About It today. I'm delighted. Professor Neiman, you were my teacher a long time ago, which was great, and now you live in Germany, you're a moral philosopher, you've lived in Israel in between, and you are just publishing a book. Uh, learning from the Germans, race and memory. Race right? and the memory of, of evil. Of evil, right. And you've written another book on evil. You've written a books on the Enlightenment, on Kant. You're a moral philosopher. And we were just saying right before, I grew up in Germany until I was a late teenager. Then I moved to America. So I read your book and I was somewhat familiar with the situations in these two countries. What you were you born, by the way? That, as you it, know, that matters it, a lot in Germany. It, I was born in Germany, yes. <laughs> and I grew up <laughs> no, in Berlin here? in 66. Okay. 66. So sort of, you know, in the middle of when all of this was sort of becoming part of public knowledge. The book is about how nations deal with the past. But I thought the book, what I understood is the book is, your book is saying it's not how they deal with the past, but how they deal with the present and the future. And what the past means and is and how these narratives get constructed. Yes and no. So uh, there's this famous William Faulkner quote. I spent half a year in Faulkner's hometown, Oxford, Mississippi, and they're absolutely sick of this quote. The past isn't over. It isn't even past. It happens to be true. (laughs) And so the book is in many ways about how the past infects and moves through the present Mm -hmm. with the claim that I really did learn in the many years that I've lived in Berlin, Mm -hmm. that if you don't deal with the past, it sits like a miasma over an infested swamp over the present. So... So it's it's with us, even whether we want it or not. Absolutely. 
And that means we should probably develop strategies how to deal with it, since it's with us, as Faulkner says, nonetheless, whether you want it to be gone or not. It's not it's even not, past. not even past, right? It's, not, it's living, it's with us, it shapes us. And then you, part of the book you talk about, which, and the title is, as you write in the book, Germans, most Germans, including me, would think, what could we learn from the Germans? That's either a provocation or it's sarcasm, or maybe they build decent cars, even that's over now. <laughs> but this is about the past. This is about the crimes of the Germans, of the Holocaust, the war crimes. And you're saying they have learned something of how to deal with the past. So part of the book discusses this attempt, which I grew up with, which in Germany is so common, but for Americans is probably reduced to a half a sentence, if that much. If they even know about that, um, they're getting a little bit better. Yeah. But it's shocking to me, and certainly when you go past the high intelligentsia, even to very intelligent, educated people in flyover country, uh, I would say actually anywhere outside of New York mm -hmm. and just possibly some academics in Boston and Chicago, mm -hmm. the association German and Nazi with no knowledge of what's happened in the past 75 years is still very strong. And weirdly, it's even stronger in Britain. Mm -hmm. Only German has multiple words for working through the past. So there was Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which meant conquering the past or overcoming the past. People have decided to cut that one out with the view it can't ever be entirely overcome or conquered. I like the term Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, which I translate as working off the past in the same way that you work off a debt perhaps a debt that wouldn't ever be entirely repaid. In other countries, and as you probably know, there is this burgeoning academic field called memory studies. Mm -hmm. I find it a euphemism, as I've said a number of times, memory studies almost always means bad memories. That's changing a little bit. Yeah. People are talking about memories of childhood or, or something like that. But basically, we're talking about memories of trauma and trauma that had to do with histories of a particular past. And perhaps because the Germans had the most to deal with, it's a process that I think Germany has done really quite well with compared to other countries. So Germans, the reason why they laugh, and I actually had a former minister of culture shout at me in, in a restaurant in Berlin. You know, it was just sort of ordinary conversation. What you're working on now, Susan? Shout at me. You cannot possibly publish a book with that title. We did too little too late. The reaction by Germans is you analyze this and you break it down why this is, why people have almost been trained and educated to have this response. But in your other work, what's behind it is also that the reference point is the Holocaust, which is right. incomparable, incommensurate. It is a unique event in history, singular in its scope, in its sort of brutality, and it's not just in terms of numbers, something really unprecedented. I think people are then reluctant to say, 
you can put this in relation to anything else. And you're saying that's on a one part study behavior. That's how the education system has set it up. But in your other work, there's also something here that people from Hannah Arendt to Tony Judd say, there's something here. You've said this too in the Holocaust. So I think you take that out in your book that it's not a facile kind of comparison. This historical past is like another one, like another one, like another one. No. And I actually think, I gather recently, I haven't followed now this whole debate, the New York Holocaust Museum just issued a statement saying, don't ever, this was in relation to AOC's reference to concentration camps on the Mexican, U.S.-Mexican border, don't ever compare the Holocaust to anything that's ridiculous. You know, if we're supposed to learn from the past, we have to be able to learn more than let's not ever have Nazis put people in cattle cars and gas them to death. I mean, we have to be able to learn something. The other qualification that I would add is the Holocaust is extremely well known in, certainly in the United States. Mm -hmm. What's less well known is that 14 million Soviet citizens were also brutally murdered, civilians, and now I'm not mm-hmm. talking about the Red Army, on the Eastern Front. And so I would prefer to talk about World War II mm-hmm. rather than singly the Holocaust. Yes, part of the Holocaust involved industrial mass murder. And one can, if one wants to, talk about why this made it worse than other forms of mass murder. I think it made it different, but I don't think it made it worse. And in my book, my much earlier book, almost 20 years ago, Evil in Modern Thought, Mm -hmm. I argue against this kind of, can we say the Holocaust was, you know, number one and the genocide in Rwanda was, you know, 1.3 or what, where are we going? In the earlier book on sort of evil and modern thought, so Hannah Arendt, she said the industrial killing plus the idea that a certain group of people ethnically, racially defined don't have a right to exist. For her, this was kind of the one of the things to really think about. And Hannah Arendt said, let's think about it, which also got her into lots of trouble, as we Indeed. know. So in some ways, what's interesting is that there's a kind of, on the one hand, the Holocaust is used as a reference point to what is morality, what is evil. At the same time, what you're saying, there's a reluctance to really think about it because it serves as a stand-in for other things. Or in the book, you say it actually replaces thought. It actually just is a placeholder. And then people think they've done the work. Exactly. But what you're saying, that they haven't done the work. And that's why we have these strange situations where someone makes a reference and then a group says you cannot use it as a word that means something else, as if it's been understood what it meant in the first place. That's which is also a, absolutely right. There's such an incredible mountain of historiography, and yet kind of testimony and of memories, and yet we don't quite know. So we can keep that in that place and say the Holocaust is not totally fully understood. At the same time, it shouldn't serve as the argument to silence all of our arguments. Exactly. And... Um... So when you when you did your project, you sort of you live in Germany and you're writing a book and saying Germany did you said a couple minutes ago did fairly well mm-hmm. dealing with a past it was fully responsible for. 
like another, let's say, aggressor nation like Japan or like South Africa with apartheid. Or, and then your example is really what you're looking at in the second part of the book is America and its history of racial oppression and genocide. Mm -hmm. You're saying Germany did well. You did a huge amount of research and interviews with people. What, what did they do well? So first of all, what I have to explain is they didn't do well at all for quite a long time. And that's very important to know. So when I was in Mississippi talking to people who are working on an American version of working through the history, yeah. one of the things that surprised people the most was how long it took the Germans to acknowledge their responsibility. When I was studying something like the Wehrmacht exhibit, which was this groundbreaking exhibit that took place in Germany from 1995 to 2000, I suppose, if, or 2001, if you include the second version of the exhibit, which was a, an extremely important historical marker for Germany because it showed that the criminal actions weren't simply you know, a few bad apples or even a few SS companies, but the Wehrmacht, which contained 17 million normal men, was a criminal organization. And that was something that was hotly disputed to the end of the last century. And when I was studying the reactions to the first Wehrmacht exhibit, which was, you know, don't talk about my grandpa, and he was just defending his country. And he was enlisted, right. drafted, he didn't volunteer, he had to be a soldier, and sure. the soldier first carried out orders. Sure. So this whole story how the army was not culpable of, of moral and war crimes, they just carried out, they ordered their soldiers. Well, and that's absolutely right, and it's also true that almost the only way to get out of the army was to do something worse, like be a concentration camp guard. So all of that's true. Nevertheless, what the Wehrmacht exhibit showed is there were all kinds of possibilities besides following orders. I mean, you could follow orders with relish. You could refuse orders. You could right. slow them down. You could get out of them. So, so actually, people had agency. And moreover, the Wehrmacht had some idea of, you know, Geneva Conventions and things that were possible. So... That's not an excuse. But what interested me in looking at these people, it wasn't simply he had no choice. That was one line of argument. But the other line of argument, which you can find in all kinds of places, including very interesting, the Frankfurt School's, the Gruppen Experiment. Not the authoritarian personality. No, 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 where they interviewed lots of people in the late 50s about feelings of guilt and responsibility and, and so on. And, and you not only have, we had no choice, which was false, but you had, we were just defending our country or my grandfather, my father was just defending our country. It was a noble vision. We lost, but it was a noble vision. And I suddenly realized these people sound exactly like the heirs of Confederate soldiers, hmm. Right. It's exactly the same kind of language, and that's very important, okay? One of the reasons why I think 
other countries, in particular the United States, can actually learn something from the process that Germany went through, which took a good 50 years and to some degree is still going on. It's not a process that will ever be, be finished is precisely because it's, it was so slow. It was not the case, as many Americans at least assume, that, oh my God, the minute the war was over, or at the very latest, the minute the information or the pictures of the concentration camps were published, everybody got down on their knees and said, oh my God, what have we done? It was pure evil. Please, what can I do to atone for this? Completely on the contrary. <laughs> and it's precisely the fact that people didn't say that, that they came up with, I mean, for a good two decades, nothing but stonewalling, that I think people who are working to do racial reconciliation in America mm -hmm. can take heart because you get the same kinds of excuses, defensiveness that you had in the first decades after the Second World War. Please, Nota Bene, I'm not arguing for a one-to-one -one correspondence between these two acts, and the first chapter is really right. devoted to the question of comparison. Right. Can you ever compare historical events? Am I saying, you know, the Confederacy was just as evil as the Third Reich? No, I'm not saying that. And there are all kinds of differences, and I can talk all day about what they are. So I'm but it's good. aware of them. We can note the difference, and you say they're not the same. What you're studying is can you draw some inference from the way this past has been processed? Exactly. So that's your study. It's really not to say I'm going to compare these two historical events. Is that exactly. I'm comparing how people deal with a particular, their particular past, which is very particular and unique. So, right, which is why I went into a, a lot of detail about both countries, because I was interested in paying attention to how children are taught, what stories get told, what songs get sung, what slogans get used. What the, museums get built. Exactly. You talk about that. What memorials times. get built, yeah. what memorials get preserved. Which guns get torn down, which is a big debate. And that's actually why I called you initially, because the debate in America, as you know, is ignited by one or two or three statues. Maybe that's a few dozen statues. It's a flag here and there, but it's really contesting the entire history of our nation. That's exactly and so it's a few flags, I mean, even if it's a hundred, even if it's a thousand monuments, but it's a very big country. But it's really a battle for the meaning of America. Uh, absolutely. What always strikes me as really amazing is that people have incredible investments in a statue or a flag or the line of a song, which are generally people who really couldn't care less about literature, the arts, a museum. <laughs> but somehow this is all symbolic. But it signifies something much greater, which is what I guess our political commitments, our moral commitments. In the chapter that I did on monuments, the debate in the U.S. has heritage, not hate, is the line of the 
people who want to preserve the Confederate monuments. And I argue that it's neither. It's about the values mm -hmm. that we choose to support as a nation, that we want our children to take up and pass on, and values as embodied in particular human beings, or in the case of Johnny Reb, you know, a sort of generic idea of what a hero is. I'm quite interested in heroism. I wrote some things about that, but let's not get off on that uh, topic too much. At the very latest since the demonstrations in Charlottesville in August 2017, the idea that Nazis are a German problem and they have nothing to do with America and, you know, any comparison is outrageous is something we should have dropped because, as you certainly know, even the expression neo-Nazi is ridiculous. These were people who were using Nazi slogans, blood and soil, carrying torches in memory of the Nazis, wearing T-shirts with quotes from Hitler. Well... I was at a dinner when this all happened, and the online editor of a national American news magazine said he was totally stunned by what happened because he thought the Nazis come to debate ideas, and that's why they should have every right to be on a university campus. And I said, your intellectual epiphany is pathetic. You're a political correspondent in America. Have you ever talked to a community that has been terrorized by the Klan or by the Nazis? And he said, but that's not the same history. So he actually felt this analogy was completely off. He was stunned. And he said, I have to rethink everything because I thought we have a few Nazis occasionally. Skokie had a few. We have the Klan. Sometimes they can run across here and there. But there's nothing, nothing really truly violent in these people. And there's nothing they really want that's really offensive because it's a bit outrageous, it's speech, it has no bearing on reality. And it was the whole package of, you, you know, this whole argument. You're trying to unpack this kind of analogy and saying, well, they're not going to be the same Nazis, but let's look at what they're doing in America. Well, first of all, you know, I occasionally get asked, you know, what's it like to be a Jew in Berlin? And somebody was attacked by an Arab for wearing a kippah. And I say, excuse me, in what country were Jews murdered? this past year? Not here, first of all. Secondly, I think you're absolutely right to talk about the communities that have been directly terrorized for the past, well, let's see, when was Reconstruction over 1877? So 150 years now, nearly, the African-American communities and we were used to calling an era by the very silly epithet Jim Crow. Brian Stevenson, whom I admire immensely, best known as the creator of the National Lynching Memorial in Montgomery, but also a professor of law who's gotten many, many people off Death Row and has written a brilliant book about it, Just Mercy, which I recommend to everyone. Brian calls it the age of racial terror, and I think he's absolutely right. Interestingly enough, he is the only American that I know with, you know, a kind of national profile who has made the comparison 
not only of you know, racial terror in the United States and racial terror in Germany. African Americans made that comparison a long time ago. Du Bois made, du Bois it. made it. Du Bois made it. Malcolm X made it. James right. Baldwin made it. In the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s. Correct. Maybe the, made it. The analogy without, in a way, implying the Holocaust wasn't a horrendous event. Absolutely. They said this was not to dilute or to diminish or to relativize but to actually create comparison, it will allow us to think through these things. Exactly. But Brian Stevenson made the analogy to what Germans have done and what we ought to do. I really wanted to interview him for the book, and I have to say he was the only person that I hesitated to call or get in touch with. He's not easy to get in touch with. He's very much in demand because I felt... Any time he spent with me, he could be saving somebody's life. And I thought, right. but he was a very, very gracious and lovely man. And I spent a day at his center. It was actually right before the museum opened. But he was profoundly influenced in building the memorial by coming to Germany by seeing what's been done here by the Stolpersteine, the stumbling stones. Um, I actually think his memorial is much better aesthetically and in other ways than the Holocaust memorial, but you can sort of see echoes of it. These stones are um, little metal paving stones in front of houses where Jews were deported, and so they mark where someone lived with their date of birth and then when they were killed and where they were killed. So we walked on the sidewalk in Berlin, and then you could you look down, and there's a stone or several or many, and it says, In this house, someone used to live here, and so their names are now remembered. Right, and he wants to do the same thing for vic- victims of lynching. Yes, so it would be thousands of memorials all over towns in America. They would say, Here, someone was murdered by a white mob, and probably never. They were never brought to trial. There was probably never anybody exactly. sentenced. So that's another part of what he wants to show, that there was no justice. These paving stones in Germany also are to remind people, this isn't over. This is still part of your history. And, and it happened right where you live yeah. and go around on your daily business, yeah. which is also a way of saying it could happen anywhere. This is actually an interesting disanalogy with the lynching sites where people actually were killed. People were not killed on my lovely street in Berlin. There's five stones right a block down the street from here. They were picked up and deported and then sent off to Poland. But But what Germans have learned, someone moved into their apartment. Someone got all their furniture for very cheap or just stole it. The neighbors were watching, the neighbors knew who lived there, so there's a lot of other parts of complicity. And this, and Stevenson Bryan is also saying there were thousands of people celebrating this as an event. And we are beginning to learn their lands were stolen, many people were lynched. I mean, for the you know, on the merest of trumped up excuses, if they became independent or successful in some way, so that they were not sharecroppers, they were not dependent on white overlords, they managed to buy a little farm. Um, that was often a reason. I've I've heard Brian Stevenson say that he found the memorial important in Berlin. It has no names on it. It's the, the big memorial in the middle of Berlin is a very abstract piece of art. Peter Eisenman built these 
stellies or whatever they're called, steel stellies. Yeah, I think, I think so. Yes, and they're just concrete and they have no names. And Brian said, "But we lack a narrative in our country, in the U.S." So he had to put names on the memorial. He said we have to tell the stories because they're not known. And he said, "America, Germany did this other part, which is that there's a certain cultural discourse that names are known and stories are known, and there have been movies about it and books, etc." He said that's absent. So can you say something about what Germany, what part you think Brian would have identified or you identify as Germany to write that America can learn from? Well, first of all, all of these monuments and the main Holocaust memorial isn't even my favorite. I, I'm, I'm not crazy about it. There are other monuments all over town, as you know that confront you, that do not let you forget mm -hmm. that a piece of this history was absolutely horrible. Okay, that's one thing. Secondly, it is taught in every school now. It wasn't, of course, basically until the people who went to college in the late 60s grew up and became teachers. Mm -hmm. There is a complaint, and I must say my own Jewish children, uh, all three of whom went to high school here, complained a bit that there was too much about the Third Reich and the Second World War. Because it's not only taught in history classes, you usually in German literature, for example, it's quite standard to take one of the many pieces of German literature that have been written about the Holocaust or the Second World War and use it as an example of German literature, which is fine. I mean, I think it should be done. I think it's really important. I think it's important to find a balance. And I think that may be happening now. I'm not entirely certain. Well, let's go back a moment and look at, you know, the stages mm -hmm. that this process went through. So, Basically, until the Auschwitz trials in 64, well, no, you can actually, let's start at the very beginning. And let's make sure we remember the contribution of East Germany. I'm going to put that aside for a moment. One of the things that is going to be most controversial about this book is that I insist on treating the processes that East Germany and West Germany went through on equal footing. Both of them did a number of things right, both of them did a number of things wrong, but there's a myth that East Germany did nothing in respect to its Nazi past. Because it's the triumphant myth that Germany, the united Germany is ultimately the redemption and realization of West German ideals. And East Germany had to have failed at everything. I was taught and brought up what you identify in the book, that all the people who the East Germans identified as former Nazis and sentenced were really democratic resistance freedom fighters. And they just had prisons set up for those people and didn't do anything, and we handled them, the Nazis. So you say, actually, even the, number, even the numbers show something else. So, so you, I swear to you, I, I fact-checked nothing as carefully <laughs> as that chapter, and I had a wonderful assistant go through it and fact-check again. But I think on another, on another level, you're saying they are competing cultural and historical narratives. And East and West Germany, which now to most Americans are even just one country, 
got united over 20 years ago, they had very different stories of how they dealt with the pattern. Correct. You're saying I can look at both of them as examples of what worked and what didn't work. Absolutely. And in fact, I think nothing stands in the way of a really deep reunification, which many people talk about, certainly in the wake of the rise of the AFD, our local right-wing party. Many people here talk about the ways in which East and West Germany have not been entirely reunified emotionally or psychically, and nothing stands more in the way of that unification than differing views about working through the Nazi past. <laughs> so let me start with West Germany, and then I'll say something about East Germany. In the very beginning, let's not forget, there were four allies, the French sort of pushed their way, and they hadn't really done very much. Without the Red Army, Americans forget and its sacrifice of 13 million soldiers, not to mention the entire country devastated all the way to Moscow, the Nazis would have triumphed. And that's a very important thing to remember. Um, the US would like to forget it. I have met distinguished Ivy League professors who seem to think that the war was won at Normandy. This is not true. <laughs> I mean, they watched Steven Spielberg, which is very powerful. Yeah, yeah. Who didn't even make that argument, it's just one movie. <laughs> yeah, well, implicitly, though, he did. Yeah. It would be nice if he had, you know, the other side. looked at some other things. But initially, things were in flux, and there were some attempts among the Allies there was a real question about what kind of re-education there would be. The very first play that was performed in Berlin, when the city was still in ruins, was Lessing's Nathan the Wise. And it played in the Soviet sector because there were highly educated Red Army officers, many of them Jewish, who knew Germany, knew German culture. Some of them had even been refugees from Germany who saved themselves in Moscow and thought, let us appeal to German Enlightenment culture as a form of re-education. Unfortunately, there weren't enough such people on the American side. But let's just say there were some interesting films produced. The Murderers Are Among Us is an extraordinary film produced basically before the Cold War, where you have a German film showing how many Nazis were simply rehabilitated themselves and made it in what was becoming West Germany. And all of a sudden, you didn't have those films in West Germany anymore. You didn't have a lot of, uh, I mean, there were some literary figures, but the Cold War was happening and the United States put a lot of pressure on Germany to, uh, West Germany to rearm. There was actually the majority of people in West Germany were against rearmament. The United States wanted Germany to rearm, wanted West Germany to rearm, and they were much more concerned about having allies in the Cold War than they were about getting old Nazis out of 
It's not just the government, let's remember. It's the government, the schools, the police force, the diplomatic service. This has all been very well documented. I'm not saying anything here that's but new it, at all, but it's not well known. But it's a story the, that changes from the, there was a trial at Nuremberg, the Nazis got sentenced, a few got executed, the rest went to prison, and then Germany hired all new people. You're saying, actually, they hired all the old people, and then it took until... When for this part to even become done, then in the 60s happens. Right. I mean, now there's an interesting thing that happens in the 50s, which is that Adenauer decides to pay reparations to the state of Israel. And that's quite important. You know, it was historically new. But there was a kind of silent bargain that Adenauer made. We will pay money. And I get to keep all my Nazis, you know, surrounding me. We will be quiet. If we're quiet and let everybody continue, build up the country, Wirtschaftswunder, economic miracle, and simply pay indemnities, it will all go away. So the Auschwitz trial was the beginning of an opening in 1964 because it was public, although Arendt documents simply how awful the defendants were and how easy it was for the German press to view that as, again, a few bad apples, tortured people at Auschwitz. It's not something that affected the general public. And then the late 60s happened, or 68, as it's called in Germany. Somehow it's not called the 60s. And what you basically had was a whole generation beginning to ask their parents, what did you do in the war, rebelling against extremely authoritarian teachers and very authoritarian parents. There's a lot of 60s bashing going on at this point in time, historically, and there are people who are saying, first of all, it wasn't really a moral outrage. It was hormones, and people always like to rebel against their elders, and so right. they had a good excuse. Then there are people who say, well, they had authoritarian, if not, I mean, there was one terrorist group that grew out of that. Certainly most people weren't terrorists, but there were authoritarian tendencies. The truth is, it's very easy to forget what was good and liberating about the 60s, particularly in Germany, that people were finally talking, or at least, what shall I say, were they talking, they were shouting a lot. <laughs> then you had things like the American television series Holocaust in the 70s, which was extremely important. Mm -hmm. It was a rather kitschy and ordinary series, but it made Jewish victims seem like ordinary Germans again to millions of Germans who didn't know any Jews or didn't know that they knew any Jews. I mean, I know Jews who grew up sort of metaphorically in hiding in Germany of the 50s, 60s, and 70s and did not let on and that they were Jewish, their parents often didn't even tell them until they were much older. One big turning point, so I get to Germany in 1982, which was right before the 50th anniversary of the Nazi takeover to power. I came on a Fulbright Fellowship initially, intending to spend a year, 
<laughs> with a few I, stops in between, you're still few, here. <laughs> that's right. With a few stops in between, I'm still here. And what impressed me the most was the variety of popular initiatives in Berlin to prepare for this anniversary year. You had neighborhoods kind of vying with each other, researching uh, what did my neighborhood do. I still have some of you know the papers and pamphlets and things that were produced. You had exhibits of art that was banned under the Nazis and of Nazi art and lectures and discussions. Exhibits. There was an exhibit of every single synagogue that was burned during Kristallnacht. You had films being made and workshops teaching people how to make films. It was really extraordinary. It was a very ground-up, mm-hmm. popular movement. Yeah. Now, my friends in Berlin kept saying, when I was marveling over this, this is Berlin, Berlin is special, it's always tended to the left, and in other places you don't get this kind of engagement at all. Well, that is certainly the case. But there were things going on in other communities as well, as there still are. There was the beginnings of a movement towards we have to have a real monument. There was this um, funny <coughs> sign in front of the KDV, the luxury shopping right. place, listing concentration camps, which is not a very honorable <coughs> monument. And which, then, nonetheless, as a child, I actually somehow it was pointed out to me, uh-huh. and every name on that monument, which is the name of some very, very known, well-known camps and some camps that I'd never heard of, I know all the names. And I knew where so the monument was, and I pointed it out to every single tourist who ever visited Berlin. It's in front of the most famous shopping center or department store. And it was aesthetically not good and all that, but somehow it has a lasting impression in my mind. So it's interesting, these things are in the cityscape and they're everywhere. Right. So what you're saying is woven into in the 80s, and, and it's ground up. So communities are actually taking it upon themselves to say, we're not going to wait for the government. Some of it, we're just going to generate well, our own. At that point, the government, I mean, what you had was this Christian democratic government that was absolutely not interested in facing its own past. And the arguments are common. This is what's interesting in the book. You say the arguments are, let's not bring up the bad past. There were terrible people in the past, bad apples. Some things were really wrong. We've also paid reparations. It's too long ago. It's, we have to move on. We have, we are now democratic. So all the arguments that cultures use to say, let's not bring up the past trauma. Right. And what, and then you said, as you pointed out, there were Jews in Berlin who lived. I had a classmate and they didn't really proclaim that they were Jewish. So no one talked about it really. So there was a kind of complicity of silence and it takes activists and people who are very courageous who make themselves very unpopular on many occasions. The woman who, advocated for the memorial, Leo Roche. She was, she was one of the people. She was one of the several people. You point out she's one of several <laughs> people. But she was a troublemaker in a good way. I mean, the name, she's kind of a pain, but... Okay. Yes, exactly. But I actually want, well, to, I want, just, to, get, I want to get there. She was a pain because she actually challenged a kind of culture of silence or complicity or status quo. So I'm interested in this when you're saying ground up. What part of that becomes difficult and 
a challenge to how we want to just all get on with Let's put it this way. Leah Rosh in particular, first of all, she changed her name. Her middle name was Eva something. Other. I mean, she is an interesting example of another weird phenomenon yes, in well, Germany yeah. of Germans who wish they had been Jewish yeah, well, and yes. do what they can. We have a few people like that in America, I think. <laughs> yes, Rachel Donizel or something. Who but that's that, exactly who right. Who thought she was black. That's and exactly right. Who knows what intentions are behind it. That's psychology. We don't even... Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's a, a real phenomenon. It's a real phenomenon. It's interesting that actually they feel they get some value out of having belonged to a victimized group or something. It's who knows what that all is. Yeah, <laughs> yes. it's fascinating, but it, but it is you know a part of the source of my annoyance with her who took the project on herself. <laughs> yeah. Actually, she didn't start it. Right, Other right, people right, right, started it. She was right. involved, and she made that her life's work. But I wanted to underscore this kind of ground up, and it goes, and it takes decades. You wanted yeah. to give me the East German part, but then I want to get to I how will. we pull this from from the German well, so to... yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me. I know I'm going on you, but it's interesting. To hear <laughs> yes, this. this is my my first Good. long interview Good. Okay, about well, this book. So, I'm going to still get you the so I'm not, East German I'm not, part. Okay, we're good to that. Let me just go two steps back again. One of the most shocking things that it took me a long time to learn here was that Willy Brandt, who every foreigner adored before kneeling in front of the Warsaw Ghetto and for having left Germany in 1934 and for proving to the rest of us outside the country that there were good Germans, Willy Brandt was not beloved in this country. On the contrary, people hated the fact that he kneeled at the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial, and they hated the fact that he left Germany. And the Christian Democrats used that against him as a campaign slogan. Can you say two things, something else about that? So he, he kneeled in front of the Warsaw Memorial, I think, 1970, yes. at a state visit as the representative of the German people, government, country. Why do people object to this? Because it has analogies in America today, what Obama absolutely, did. Uh, absolutely, do. apology tour in Hiroshima, because it was a feeling, a basically apology tour, and particularly kneeling in front of the Slavs. You still have a racist, anti-Slavic view, and here he was, you know, sort of bowing before the Untermenschen, the subhuman yeah. group. But it's interesting that this this one gesture is what's remembered about someone who did much more different things. And other nations have also had those. So Australia had Sorry Day and Apologized, which probably half of Australia is outraged by, and the other half thinks it was a good step forward. Well, it wasn't, <laughs> you know, what shocked me is that it wasn't even half of the country that approved of Brandt in 1970. It was a very small minority. So because you mentioned it ground up rather than the government. So the government was absolutely against this kind of thing until 1985. So in 1985, President Richard von Weizsäcker makes a speech on the 40th anniversary of May 8th, the end of the war, and he becomes the first government official to call May 8th a day of liberation. Until then, it had been the day of defeat, or the day of the unconditional surrender, or you just didn't mention it, okay? 
And that was a sort of watershed in German history because it meant that the German government was finally acknowledging we're grateful that we were liberated from the Nazis. Okay. Yeah, but that's a really total revaluation. It's not defeat, but actually it's the rebirth or the origin of our country. It's, really... it's, it's interesting because I was here at the time yeah. and I didn't understand enough about German history to realize what a big deal the speech was. That is, it seemed to me that he was saying banalities that anybody outside of Germany <laughs> knows. Yes, we suffered during the war, but actually we started the war. And no. thank God Duh. we were liberated by the Americans. That's right. right? And, you, and the Russians. <laughs> well, I grew up in West Germany. I was very much liberated by the Americans. West Berlin, I was West indoctrinated Berlin. from the beginning. I was liberated by only the Americans and the Russians remained my enemies until the war came down. Okay. So I was really indoctrinated into the story, at least into the liberation story, but I it was know. a one-sided liberation. I know. <laughs> so now let's cut for a yeah. minute and talk about, because it's a good place, yeah. to point out the fact that in East Germany it was called the Day of Liberation from day one. <laughs> yeah, he said it in the book. I was stunned by that. Yeah. It actually was so radical for a West German politician in East Germany. They had done that the whole time. Correct. <laughs> of course, the East Germans pointed out the first victims of the Nazis were communists, then Social Democrats, and then Jews. Okay? Now, so this was taught in all the schools. There were monuments put up all over the place. The concentration camps were preserved. Buchenwald in particular, but also Sachsenhausen, there were no concentration camps preserved in, in Dachau in 1965, pushed by former prisoners, was to some extent renovated and turned into a historical site, but it was tiny compared to the research and, that was going on in East Germany and the ways in which every child had to go to a concentration camp. There were films done you know, that were on television. It was simply part of the culture. People who had been in the resistance got special privileges, were honored. Now, to be perfectly, so there's a debate that goes on that says, well, but they didn't talk about Jews. They talked about communists and anti-fascists. Well, Yes, in the first order, but I interviewed a huge number of former East Germans. They are list on of all of the books published in the former GDR that were about Jews, that were about the Jewish Holocaust. You know, there were reasons why they chose not to emphasize that aspect of the Second World War. Some of them were bad reasons. Okay, and let's be honest, in wanting to set itself up as the better Germany, the anti-fascist state on German soil, East Germany used that as propaganda to cover up an awful lot of its own misdeeds. No question about it, okay? But nevertheless, they were from certainly the leadership they were refugees in Moscow. They did fight in the Spanish Civil War against the fascists, you know. 
and they were not Nazis. And again, there are numbers of this. Of course, there were Nazis in East Germany as there were in West Germany, right. but a fraction of the number. There were many more trials and many more people were sentenced than was ever mm-hmm. the case mm-hmm. in West Germany. So it's very important and very interesting to, you know, look at the ways in which each country made mistakes. But if you have to talk about sort of, you know, straightforward things, was it the day of liberation? Was it taught in schools? Were there concentration camps that people had to visit? All of that. East Germany comes out ahead. Now, there is a debate about this insofar as there's a debate. I will start one here or get one going again because people are going to be furious at me. But you're saying, it's, saying, a, you're saying it's an important debate because it actually has huge implications for the future of Germany. It and certainly does. And there's one point I want, I want to get to the analogy to America, but I want to one point you made in the book and you say, the argument that there's a rise of these right-wing populist parties is that it's too simple to explain it by not acknowledging what happened in both countries, how they dealt with their fascist It's completely past. false. And by not looking Every at that, East German, yeah. you know, laughs or screams at that as an explanation. But it's a bit of a probably a self-serving narrative. And I'm t- I don't really know. I'm trying to think through with your book. Well, I think, so there's... Another issue about why the right-wing party has gotten stronger in the East, it should be pointed out that all their leadership is from the West. They're polling best in the East, but all of the party leaders are from the West. So let's, and in terms of hard numbers, they're stronger in the West. Proportionally, they're stronger in the East. So, so this argument, just simplistic explanations, is all just coming from the former doesn't work. Right. An issue that may not be so interesting to Americans at this point has to do with the ways in which East Germans felt that they were colonized rather than that there was a reunification. And there are all kinds of ways in which they have been disadvantaged compared to the West Germans and more importantly even than being disadvantaged and there's some interesting material ways in which that was the case disrespected <laughs> I mean, right but that's important that actually I think does resonate for all Americans because that is a very powerful narrative in America that a lot of Americans are disenfranchised, have been disrespected, and are disadvantaged by the movement of the last 20, 30 years. Absolutely. internationalization, et cetera, et cetera. And in, you're absolutely right. And in East Germany, it has this added fascinating twist that it really was another country that was taken over yeah. by its cousin. Well, in America, it's the coastal elite probably exploiting. Yeah, similar, something like that. There's a similar, regional kind yeah. of... And actually, okay, the regional so, part is interesting in a way, even that the second part of your book, you talk about the tension between competing stories of the Confederacy and of the Civil War and of racial oppression that, that's regionally specific. That's actually quite interesting that the South also feels, is it a war of aggression from the North? Is it an imposition of federal 
rules on state rights? Is it a regional dispute? Really, we should be left alone to do our own thing. All these contested ideas. What is the civil war about? And I came to America, as you said, you know, as a teenager. So I was actually participating in this kind of what am I being taught about the civil war? Right. How to what were you taught? I was in Philadelphia, so I was what taught. Were you taught? I was taught that it was to free the slaves. <laughs> that was what I was taught largely, and then there was a terrible war, and then they were free. And then so it took a little yeah, longer to, to get equality. That would that be was in so 80s, uh, 84, 85, 82, 83, early 80s. So, but I got a pretty northern story. And when I went to college and I had, you know, lots of friends and teammates who were from the South, I was stunned that they had a different idea of what the war had been about. <laughs> you know, what is so interesting and disturbing is the way in which the Southern narrative in many ways became the national narrative. And again, there have been some other people who've said this. It's not a, an original position with me. So you saw this in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was asked who her favorite president was. And she answered Abraham Lincoln. Well, that's an easy call. And then she said, because if he hadn't been assassinated, we wouldn't have had all this mess with Reconstruction and Jim Crow. And that was a moment I was fortunate I was beginning to study this stuff because, frankly, I didn't learn about Reconstruction and Jim Crow in history courses either, except, I, I mean, you know, I had maybe this kind of vague, oh, it was all one big mess, which Hillary Clinton, an extremely intelligent and well-educated woman, oh, one big mess. Well, yeah, it was one big mess. Um, reconstruction is something that can easily be compared with the occupation of Germany by Allied troops and an attempt to impose civil rights for uh, African Americans, the beginning of a re-education. Reconstruction was actually the first time in, in the history of the country that you had mandatory public schooling. You had thousands of African Americans not just voting, but running, and in many cases winning local and national office. And it was, there was a nascent Ku Klux Klan. They were put down with Union soldiers because basically Union soldiers were guaranteed, were occupying the South to guarantee that you didn't re-enslave the freed slaves. And Andrew Johnson did his absolute best to stop all that. There was a reparations program, the 40 acres and a mule comes mm -hmm. from right actually before the war was entirely over. General Sherman promised 40 acres and a mule to freed slaves, having asked a group of slaves what, what they wanted, which is mm -hmm. astonishing for that day. Jeffersonian ideal land and the tools to, to farm. <laughs> Correct. But I mean, that he asked the freed yeah. slaves, what do you want? What should we do now? Mm -hmm. You know, knowing there were 4 million freed people, what was, you know, what should happen? Andrew Johnson, six months later, stopped all of that rolled back as much as it was possible to roll back from Reconstruction. It was 
finally ended in 1877, so it was not even 12 years with the compromise presidential election in which basically a deal was struck from the South once again. The South has played kingmaker, I believe, more times than not Mm -hmm. since the Civil War. The deal was, we'll let you decide the presidency if you remove federal troops from the South. Okay, And then what you had, and they had the gall to call it redemption, you had basically, some people have called it the age of neo-slavery, you had the Black Codes, you had the revising of state constitutions, making it not only impossible for African Americans to engage in public life and voting and running for office, you had these incredible things making it possible for them to be arrested on the most ridiculous of trumped-up charges. Mm-hmm. There's an absolutely horrible but eye-opening, I mean, it's a very good book, but horribly eye-opening book called Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman. I talk about his findings in my book. He talks about convict leasing, Mm -hmm. in which in many ways was worse than actual slavery. You had plantations and factories and mines leasing people who had been arrested on trumped-up charges and keeping them in conditions that were actually worse than under slavery because the companies didn't even have a financial interest mm. in keeping their slaves alive. It's only a 40% mortality rate. So you have a whole history of, of things which for most Americans, even intelligent Americans, myself very much included until I started doing this research, You have about a hundred-year black hole in our historical memory. This is being changed in the last few years. You have some works of historians who are writing for popular history. I mean, Du Bois wrote about Reconstruction in the 30s, but who read it? Scholars of African-American history, uh, occasionally of other parts of history. Just in the past years, and this has been a good thing about the monuments controversy, you have a real national discussion about what the Civil War meant when the monuments were erected, which was not just after the war. It was after Reconstruction in an attempt to capture the narrative and win the narrative war, which they did. And they did for not just for the South, but uh, for most of the country. So that when I was growing up, I mean, I had this sort of weird, but you even had sort of people on the left contesting the idea that the war was fought over slavery because we kind of didn't want to believe that wars are actually fought on principle. And so people were perfectly happy to take the idea, well, it was sort of economic conflict and slavery might have died out anyway. That historians have disproven, by the way. But there was um, there was a taking over mm-hmm. of the Southern narrative in popular culture. So the 
The classic films are Birth of a Nation, interestingly, Birth of a Nation, not a region. It's great that the White House. That's Hi, right. Including quotes from President Wilson okay. talking about defending the Aryan nation, fighting back in the presence of the Ku Klux Klan. So don't tell me Nazis are a German problem, please. Um, you know, this is in the very first. Mm-hmm. nationally successful Hollywood film. Mm-hmm. And the first film, as you say, screened at the White House. Overtaken in popularity only by Gone with the Wind. But as I started looking around, there were all kinds of other films made around that time and also later. And the Confederates were always, if not the heroes, you never had until, I suppose, 12 Years a Slave and Django Unchained were the first really broad popular films, and they're very recent. You didn't have popular films depicting the horror of slavery. Do you think um, the one exception maybe is Alex Haley's Roots and the TV series? You're right. Because You're right. I just Roots point it out. Sorry, I forgot. No, it's, it's actually a useful example because you're saying the South won the war of constructing a narrative, that it was basically federal sort of overreach, that it was kind mm-hmm. of a violence on the state's rights. I think that's correct. I think things like Roots, and you mentioned the TV series Holocaust earlier, which was a commercial series, which used documentary footage, which is quite radical. In that TV series, they use actual footage to prove that this was real. They already know in 1975, they're going to be people who say this is just fiction. And Roots, Alex Haley had a whole controversy, whether it's true or not, the story of his ancestors. But I think that story was one of those moments when the cultural narrative at least is challenged. And, You're absolutely and I, right. I do think all African-Americans, first of all, felt our story is now on screen. And white Americans probably thought, whoa, maybe it wasn't just all nice slaves picking a little bit of cotton. This is a brutal system of exploitation and genocide. So that's really interesting, right? You're absolutely right. The films are, are quite comparable, and I believe they came out... Roughly the same roughly, time, 75, 76 or something like roughly that? Roughly the same time. Now, I have to say, at the time, I wasn't interested in watching either film. Um, I didn't watch a lot of television when but I was younger. I watched television But what now. you're describing is... That it even in Germany took decades, and we're saying in America it's been over a hundred years. And how do you shift this narrative? Because what you what people are competing for is their position as martyrs, as villains, as heroes, as victims, and it's very hard to shift that right now. And then in your book you talk about how we now live under a president who actually has a pretty strong investment in shaping narratives. Actually, weirdly enough, this president has a huge investment in symbolic forms, in stories, and unfortunately, he's quite good at it right now, because he happens to understand how social media will work. (laughs) And his favorite president in history is Andrew Jackson. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's good to remind me of, and I I watched Roots way, way later, and Holocaust, I mean, as I was interested in the the historiography of, of all of this. So interestingly, there is a scene in Roots where 
I think her name is Kizi, the young girl who learns to read and is sold down the river for learning to read, which is heartrending. That, for me, is almost a scene, it is a scene that I would never forget mm -hmm. from that series. It, so it does show, I think, the most brutal fact about slavery, which was the breakup of families and selling people away. Yeah, I think everybody has a key scene. Okay. They have to rename it. Or show, yeah, well, the context of Toby. It's like the breaking of this entire past and reconstructing a history. It's so taking sure. away this entire past. But it doesn't show the horror of post slavery. It, it goes into the future, in the present, in a very strange way. It's what we should probably do a whole show on. <laughs> okay. But I kind of want to focus more on you saying it took a long time in Germany. There were fits and starts. There were things that worked well. There were things that didn't work well at all. You actually say in your book, West Germans kept more Nazis in power on the whole. And in East Germany, that's a controversial statement. In West Germany, you'll know that. <laughs> you'll get that response. What would it take now? So what is Brian Stevenson and these people and all the historians, Eric Fauna, Michelle Alexander, all these people, they're trying to do, they're trying to rewrite a story. You're also trying to do that. You're trying to say, I we am. need this story to be corrected because we will not move forward. Right. So the historians are doing that work. And Henry Louis Gates has just written a book that I assume will be canonical. It's also beautifully and brilliantly illustrated, and it's short, and I think he's got a television And it's a TV series, series. yes, which yeah. will reach many more people, right? That's right. Yeah. And so that kind of work is absolutely crucial, that we not simply talk about the period of slavery and the Civil War. I mean, we do need to keep retelling the story of the Civil War, obviously, but I think even more importantly, we need a history of the period afterwards. Mm -hmm. And Gates and other people are doing that. I think we need something on the kind of multi-pronged front that you see in Germany. We need monuments. We need to take down the Confederate monuments, which, of course, New Orleans already did. We need to create new monuments. We need to create new historical monuments, not simply monuments of shame and mourning, like where people were murdered, but monuments of heroes. And Stevenson is, is clear about the fact that the South in particular is littered with monuments of one kind and another to the Confederacy, but there are almost no monuments to the people, black and white, who stood up against lynching and against segregation. There are some I went to visit, as many as I could when I was in the South, but they're tiny. And they're very poorly funded and kept up. So monuments are about value. But I want to underscore this one point that you say you need monuments to heroes. Absolutely. You need John Brown, you need Harriet Tubman, who's not going to be in our $20 bill, it turns out, this year. But you're saying, because you've written very about heroes before, heroes are important. And actually, what I, why I want to underscore that, because it's not a, an expected liberal statement. Because liberals have a really hard time with heroism and aggrandizing people and mythic tales. But you refer to Richard Rorty and people who made this argument that liberals on the left, the they give up on these kinds of empowering narratives. Right. And that's really risky because they will be filled by other people. Absolutely. And of course, we need not just abstract values. We need reminders 
both in story and in visual forms, that real men and women actually embodied those values. And I don't believe that heroes have to be saints. I don't believe they have to be perfect. So the problem is when, you know, progressives kind of start looking, oh, he's got feet of clay and she did something wrong and all of that. Of course, you know, they were human beings and, and that's important. But, you know, monuments to Ida B. Wells, a brave crusader against lynching, Ran a press who was a journalist, right, as a woman at exactly. a time when black women were not, uh, had an easy time running a press. Or to Fannie Lou Hamer, the great activist in Mississippi, or, you know, there, there are lots. And, and I, I went to those monuments in Mississippi and Alabama, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner in Philadelphia, Mississippi. But it's, it's tiny stuff. These need to be national as well as local. And, and those are just some of, the ones that I know, that is that, you know, it would be an interesting assignment for every community in the country, both to find a site of racist terror and to find a site where people stood up against it. Strength and resilience also, yeah. which I think is the, the, the Museum of African American Culture and History, David Archie's building in, right. in, in Washington does that because it tells you a narrative of 400 years. Yes. And there is a bit of from enslavement to the contributions and even triumphs of African-American history. It does. And there are many wonderful things about it. I think there are one or two things that are problematic about it. I mean, it's clearly, it's got a task and it does that one task well. Give it 10 years. It's a new museum. Sure. I actually think in 10 years it'll be a better museum because I think it'll grow into its own mission. Sure. in some ways, the, the radicality that it's there, because it hadn't been there. And you point that out, you said that there hadn't been a monument. There wasn't any On the mall in Washington. Yeah. It's so well, I, yeah, I mean, it's not, that's a wondrous museum. It seems to me that if we get a monument to the Vietnam War, well, first of all, uh, there should be a little reminder that it wasn't only Americans who were killed in the Vietnam War. You know, but if we can have a, Holocaust, and we need you know something to mark slavery and the genocide of Native Americans, which is not so clearly marked in the Native American Museum. But that's another story. I I decided not to even go into that question because it would have resulted in a much much longer book. But I, I like all the points you just made. What could be done? I want to finish on one point because you talk about your own experiences. You were a resident scholar or a visiting distinguished scholar. Yeah, in, visiting scholar in, in Mississippi. In Mississippi, at the University of Mississippi, right, to Ole Miss. And you participated in kind of exercises or workshops which are not acad- properly or only academic. Absolutely. Can you say something to include about this experience also? Yes. Because you are a trained philosopher, an intellectual, a public figure, but part of the book talks about your personal experience also as a white woman who grew up in Atlanta originally, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very powerful that you connected those two things, which yes. is not what most philosophers would probably talk about as much. <laughs> well, I described this book as a mishmash because it has several forms. So I talk about my own experience. I interviewed lots of people, both in Germany and the United States. There are, of course, philosophical reflections and I, I, you know, when people ask me what genre, I said, well, mishmash, and um, 
I was absolutely delighted when Todd Gitlin in his blurb said she's created a new genre of investigative philosophy. So, okay, that's great. Whatever you call it, I am writing in the first person, not because I think all experience is subjective, but because I am trying to take responsibility for what I write and because I think all of these questions are immensely personal because of the, I don't know, nearly 30 years that I've lived in Germany and I've seen the way in which these questions really affect people at a family level, at how they relate to their parents, how they bring up their children. These are not abstract philosophical historical questions or even abstract political questions. They go very, very deep and I wanted my book to reflect that. And yes, while I was in Mississippi, I was a visiting scholar at something called the Institute for Racial Reconciliation, which no longer, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, exists in that form at the University of Mississippi. But other groups, there are groups, both in the, all over the country, smallish groups, in which sometimes direct descendants of slaves and direct descendants of slave owners meet and talk about their experience, sometimes simply in which interested black and white people who realize they have a problem meet for sessions. And some of the sessions are not very good. I know Starbucks had this day-long session. This was maybe a year and a half ago or something when there was a clear instance of racism and some African-Americans were told to leave and Mm -hmm. Starbucks shut itself down for a day and did racial diversity training for a day. I don't think there's all that much you can do in a day, but there are some excellent people running workshops in different places in which for the first time, black Americans and white Americans actually talk about race. And it's really hard to do if you're not in some kind of a setting like that because so if I'm talking to a black colleague I've basically been taught that noticing the fact that they're African American is rude and it's not it's noticing them qua member of a group rather than as an individual human being different from you know, many other African-Americans. And the funny thing is I understood all this way better through the contortions that many Germans go through in talking to me as a Jew. And, you know, either over-mentioning it, oh, I love Woody Allen, I don't like Woody Allen, this is before all the, you know, to stuff, you know, and and I'm sort of sitting there, and it, it's kind of like the movie. I don't know if you saw the movie Get Out, where the, yeah, yeah, totally. where the but father either, says, "Either you like Woody Allen, or are you from New York?" Because I want to find out whether you're Jewish, but I can't say exactly. Well, as a German, I cannot ask, but I kind of want to know exactly. And then you, the next thing is, and then you sort of say, "Oh, I'm so sorry." <laughs> right. There's something must have happened in your family. They're actually not in my family. And they said, well, that can't be true. Exactly. So you're being lectured on being Jewish, but not talked about. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you have the absolute same awkwardness mm. among white Americans. I mean, same. Of course, it's not exactly the same, but, yeah. but similar awkwardnesses, mm. white Americans and black Americans 
when do we talk about it? You know, and I've, I mean, I've been in situations where I've tried to talk about it and I've noticed that, you know, the African American really did not want to talk about race at all. And even if I was kind of, you know, in the middle of doing my research, it was interesting. When I, people were very happy to talk about, African Americans were very, very interested in this project. And they were happy to talk when I told them about the German case. And that would get people going and get people very interested. I think this is actually part of what the book is doing. And you talk about it here. You lived in different countries. You lived in the US, you lived in Israel, you lived in Germany. It allows you to bring a topic up through a comparison that doesn't create equalities. It doesn't say these things are equal, but say, I can start talking to you about how the Germans dealt with the Holocaust, which gets you to a place to be able to talk about how America does or does not deal with its exactly. racist past. And that allows you a perspective that's a bit outside of your own proper perspective. And I think the book is saying, this is a useful tool to understand what is going right and what is going wrong with race politics in one country, to look at another country, not Thank because you. it solves all the problems, but Thank it you. starts a conversation. It's interesting that you say some people would be unhappy to talk about it. As a German, I'm like, I don't really want to talk about how we did, but I'm sure you have enough Germans who will like to talk to you about racism in America because it displaces it. And then you can through that back door, get back to say, well, what you're talking about, what is happening in your own family, history, country. So I think this is really the great thing about the book that you're saying you can open up a discussion that you can almost not open up because it's so tense or so loaded. Thank you. Or, I mean, it is, there are these groups in different right. places in the country, and I, I took part in some of them, and I found them very moving, in which people who are trained, I mean, in most cases, they kind of train, I'm the first ones train themselves to figure out how to do this, but to build up trust by a series of exercises in which people got to know each other and would talk about commonalities in their experiences before they could talk about differences and then talk about systematic racism in ways that white people didn't feel threatened. And I, you know, so, I mean, as we just saw in the presidential debates, and I'm sure it will come up all over the place, the worst thing you can call somebody in the United States at the moment is a racist, and even Donald Trump, of course, would say he wasn't a racist, you know. So the question is, what kinds of systematic racism have we all been presupposing and not really looking at that we need to look at? Yeah. And yeah, I think that taking a look at this other case is really an extremely valuable tool to having these conversations in addition to all of these other things. Right. And I want to thank you for this and I, I wish you the best of luck with the discussions around this book. I think you will get strong responses in the best way that people will say what, what you cannot compare and actually what you do is to break down the work that it's not a comparison that creates symmetries or equalities. It's actually a tool to understand your own situation. 
I think that's the best thing that this book can do, so I wish you best of luck with that. Well, thanks very much. <laughs> Great. Thank you for the conversation, Susan. It was a pleasure. <laughs>